U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the third officer, we're still waiting to see if he's going to get promoted, Christoph. Hey. Hey, everybody. I can't wait to be promoted. Woo. Well, you got to put in your application, you got to do the oral boards, and then you got to go through the initiation progress, and that's going to get pretty daunting. Yes, I hear there's swabbing involved, too. Yes, you are the swab. Aha. Perfect. So we got to get your hair grown out. (laughs) All right, so last time we were doing torpedoes, so we're going to try to finish it up today. We'll see if that works. So are you ready to get underway? Are you asking me or the audience? You. Oh, yes, I'm ready. Okay, so we are in the last bit of the history part before we get into all the technical stuff. So post-World War II, you know, after the World War of II, because World War III hasn't started just yet. Or so they would have you believe. Right, could just be an information war. So, you know, after World War II, submarines increased in strength, speed, So they had to be given better warheads and better motors. So during the Cold War, torpedoes were a very, very important asset. Do you know why? Um, I'm imagining because they're sneaky. Well, because of nuclear-powered submarines. Because they don't have to surface very often. Nowadays, I don't even think they have to at all. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I was going to ask... Um, so like a, I guess diesel would be the alternative. How often would a diesel need to surface, I suppose, for refueling versus nuclear? Well, with a diesel sub, when you're under the water, you're being run off of batteries. Okay. So whenever you have to charge the batteries, you got to run those diesel engines. You cannot do that underwater. Right. You need air for combustion. Right. Nuclear power submarines, they don't have any output like smoke to where you have to worry about that so the nuclear power the reactor's just going so you don't have to recharge batteries at all you just keep going that's wild and now with air recirculation technologies just like they use you know on the space station Mm -hmm. you don't even have to worry about coming up to replenish the air that's pretty great yeah and you you want to keep those submarines under the water and untraceable because some of them are carrying nuclear warheads so there are some navies that have launched torpedoes since the end of world war ii uh during the korean war the u.s attacked a dam with an air-launched torpedo the israeli navy they had a fast attack craft and it crippled a american electronics intelligence vessel the uss liberty with gunfire and torpedo in 1967 during the Six-Day War. This resulted in a loss of 46. Oh, wow. I hadn't heard of that one. The Pakistan Navy. Yes, they have one. There was a Dolphin-class submarine, and it sank a Indian frigate, the INS Kirki, Uh December 9th, 1971, during the Indio-Pakistani War. And there was 18 officers and 176 sailors lost. The British Royal Navy, they had a nuclear tech submarine, the HMS Conqueror. And they sank a Argentine light cruiser, the ARA General Belegriono. I know I didn't do that right, but it is what it is. They fired two Mark 8 torpedoes during the Falklands War, and that attack claimed 323 sailors. During the Lebanon War, there was a Israeli submarine, and they torpedoed and sank a Lebanese coaster transit that had 56 Palestinian refugees that they were taking to Cyprus. 
it was attacked and sank because they thought that the vessel was evacuating anti-Israeli militias. I see. Now, it was hit by two torpedoes, but they were able to run her aground and were able to evacuate the survivors. They lost 25, including her captain. The Israeli Navy decided that they were going to tell everybody about it in 2018. Like, oh, by the way, this happened way back when. You can't be mad at us anymore, though, because of how long ago it was. Yeah, I remember using that strategy as a child in uh, school, and it was fairly effective. Like, something would happen in third grade, and then seventh grade, I'm like, oh, yeah, mom, I did this in third grade. And then by then, it was like, well, that's adorable, because that happened back then, and you're different now. You're better now. And I would nod and say, yes, that's true. So, from a geopolitical strategy in communication, I, I could see how that could have some benefits. Now you know how politics work. Oh, I just have to think about myself as a child. Exactly. So the Croatian Navy, they disabled a Yugoslav patrol boat, the PC-176 Mukos, with a torpedo launched by their naval commandos from a improvised device. So improvised torpedo platform, I guess. This happened during the Battle of the Dalmatian Channels in 1991. Three sailors lost their lives, and the rest of the men, maybe women, it is 1991 after all, they were recovered by Croatian trawlers. They were able to salvage the boat, and it was put back into service as OB Tech. Zero to Solita. And the last one is in 2010. March 26, 2010, a South Korean Navy ship, the ROKS Chinan, was sunk with 46 souls on board. When it was investigated, they found that the warship had been sunk by a North Korean torpedo fired by a midget submarine. Um, they have a ceasefire, uh, from what I understand. Wouldn't that inflame things? Oh, absolutely. You don't think they do things every day that should inflame things anyway? I guess that's true. It's a cost-benefit. It's like, yeah, we could go to war again, but... Well, they're still at war. Oh, I guess that's right. It's not never formally ended. Right, it's a ceasefire. Every time the South Korean and American militaries do drills it inflames the border yeah i I suppose that's true and whenever the north are testing their ballistic missiles it inflames the border so i mean i think nowadays it's just like normal so normal it's just like whatever okay and besides we don't know how many things the south koreans have sunk on the north korean side yeah that's true (laughs) so With these torpedoes, like all these different countries launching torpedoes at their enemies, um, outside of the example with England and Argentina, which are they producing their own torpedoes? Is that like an easy thing to do? Or do you think they're buying them from uh, a bigger country that makes torpedoes generally? How, How does that work? It's probably both. The countries that can produce their own will produce their own. The countries that can't will buy them. And the countries that can't produce enough will produce what they can and buy the rest. Do you think that's a lucrative business that perhaps I should start getting into? Weapons manufacture? Well, torpedoes specifically. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Especially during wartime, you could be making a killing over... Ah, <laughs> nice. Over there right now. All right, so let's move on to energy sources. So, in 1866, they were using compressed air. The air was stored at pressures of about 370 PSI, and this fed into a piston engine that turned a single prop at about 100 RPM. It could go about 200 yards at an average speed of 6.5 
and then in later models the speed and range were improved by increasing the pressure of the air i'm sure it took a little bit to figure out where the maximum would be before you know the tanks exploded on you right yeah i guess more compression more oxygen you can fit into a space right so that makes sense and this is you said normal air the uh, this is just compressed air yes in 1906, they built torpedoes that could cover nearly 1,100 yards at an average speed of 35 knots. Whoa. That's quite a leap. And it only took 40 years. So when they started doing the higher and higher pressures, there was a thing called adiabatic cooling. Because of this, they had icing problems. Huh. So they remedied this by heating the air with seawater before it was fed into the engine. This increased engine performance because the air expanded even more after heating. I, I'm, for the audience, I'm nodding as if I understand the technical intricacies of uh, combustion and thermodynamics. Like, yes. So speaking of heating torpedoes, because of their experimenting with heating the air to keep the ice out of there, they gave them an idea of injecting liquid fuel, like kerosene, into the air and igniting it. That's, I don't predict that'll go as well, but yes, let's, let's keep listening and find out. The heated air expands even more, and the burned propellant adds more gas to drive the engine more. Okay. So this started happening in good practice, in standard practice, in 1904. Then they came up with the wet heater. This was to use water to cool the combustion changer of these now fuel-burning torpedoes. This solved heating problems, so more fuel could be burned and also allow additional power to be generated by feeding the steam that was formed into the engine together with the combustion products. Oh, wow. And this is what became known as wet heater torpedoes. What a cool idea. I mean, theoretically. Actually, most torpedoes in World War I and World War II were wet heaters. Yeah, I could see. I mean, that. I mean, it's a cool technology, how they're able to redirect the steam and everything that Yes, that's probably when they were... I, I remember last episode you discussed the effectivity of them or how many actually detonated. Yes. I'm sure with this technology, it started getting much more, um, from a percentage-wise, drastically increased. No. No? No. Propulsion okay. and warheads are two different things. Oh, right. This just made it so they could go further and faster. Got it. So... Now we get to compressed oxygen. So the amount of fuel that can be burned by a torpedo is limited, of course, by the amount of oxygen it can carry. Compressed air only has about 21% oxygen in it because, you know, it takes it right out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So there are some engineers in Japan that developed a torpedo called the, called the Type 93 for their destroyers and cruisers in the 1930s. It used pure compressed oxygen instead of compressed air. And this allowed it to have its performance unmatched by any torpedo that was made during that time. Now, oxygen systems did pose a danger to any ship that came under fire while still carrying the torpedo. Because you know what? Pure oxygen is very volatile. Oh, yes. I saw Jaws. Yes. Japan actually lost several cruisers because of secondary explosions of those Type 93s. And at this time, Germany was experimenting with hydrogen peroxide because of... Hydrogen? Huh. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. As a fuel source, you mean? Yep. I never considered it a fuel source. I know it's... uh. It, it turns your hair blondish and then is also good for cuts. Well, when you oxidize things, it can get explosive. I will not tell my children that. 
No, don't do that. And any children that are listening, you did not get that from us. Correct. So the British approached their problem by adding additional oxygen for their torpedo engine by the use of oxygen-enriched air. So they brought the oxygen percentage up to 57%. This increased the range of the torpedo by quite a lot. The 24.5-inch Mark I had a range of 14,000 or 15,000 yards at 35 knots with a 750-pound warhead. Now, they were a little nervous about the equipment that they used because of security reasons. So they shifted to the Brotherhood burner cycle and and used unenriched air. When you mean security reasons, is that similar to the uh, secondary explosions that the Japanese experienced? Maybe like sabotage or something like that? Or is it something different? More unlikely sabotage. Yeah, I could see that. So the burner cycle engine, or the Brotherhood burner, burner cycle engine, was developed after World War One, And it was a four-cylinder burner cycle engine and was about twice as powerful as the wet heater engine. It was first used in the British Mark 8 torpedoes, which they were still using in 82. Wow. It used a modified diesel cycle using a small amount of paraffin to heat the air that was going through it. And it was then compressed and further heated by a piston. And then they injected more fuel. So this produced about 322 horsepower when it first was introduced. Wow. And at the end of World War II, they had increased it to 456 horsepower. That's nuts. They did propose to fuel it with nitric acid. And they thought that if they had gone through with it, it would have gotten up to 750 horsepower. I know what I'm putting in my car later today. <laughs> Good luck with that. Torpedoes only work underwater. Oh, I guess I'll have to... Yeah, well, I'll plan a beach trip then. Or you could put it, attach it to your canoe. Okay. Just no warheads. A nitric acid-driven torpedo engine canoe? Yeah, just no. I, don't put the warhead on. Oh, yeah, of course not. Yeah, throw that out the window. Yes, the metaphorical canoe window. Oh, I was talking about your neighbor's house. I know how, oh. how loud they are at you. That's, they are pretty loud. It's true. <laughs> so the Brennan torpedo had two wires wound around drums that were inside it. There are shore-based steam winches pulling the wires, and it spins the drums and drives the propellers. This is what's called wire-driven. A guy who was controlling it were able to provide guidance. These systems were mainly used for coastal defense uh, in the British colonies and isles from around 1887 to 1903. And the funny bit is the army controlled these, not the Navy. Why, why would they do that? That seems counterintuitive. Because it's military. Oh, well, I guess... They don't always do things the most intuitive way. I could see that. I'm sure our listeners have experienced that uh, directly in many capacities. I have. <laughs> so they got about 2,400 meters in range at about 25 knots. But not too bad. Yeah, that's really good. So the U.S. Navy used Howell torpedoes in the late 19th century. And this was flywheel powered. It had a flywheel that they had to wind before they launched it. And it was able to go about 400 yards with a speed of about 25 knots. The advantage of this torpedo was that it did not leave a trail of bubbles behind it. That makes sense. So this gave the vessel that it was targeting less chance to be able to detect and evade it. And it also was able to avoid giving away the attacker's position as well. 
That's pretty clever. And you're not restricted by um, any resource limitations, like on fuel or anything. And there's no fear of secondary explosions like we had with the, uh, especially the the 100% oxygen torpedoes. Like There's no fuel source except for just the flywheel. It's not even fuel. It's just wound up energy. Right. The secondary explosions only come from the warhead itself and not the warhead and the fuel. Ah, forgot about the warhead. That was convenient. <laughs> That's the whole purpose of these things is deliver <laughs> right. a warhead. So now we move on to electric battery systems. There was a guy named uh, John Erickson, and he invented it in 1873. It was powered by a cable from an external power source. Because the batteries at that time, no bueno. The Sims Edison torpedo was also powered very closely to that way as well. There was a Nordfelt torpedo, electrically powered. This one was steered by impulses down a trailing wire. So it was a rewired remote control torpedo. Huh. Underwater. That's wild. I remember having a wired remote control car, and the wire was not very long, and it was not very fun. Um, I never would have imagined being tethered to a torpedo via wires. That's Tell me more about that. Ooh, the wire is very long. Well, yeah, I imagine it would have to be. Yeah, that's what it is. It's just like uh, wire-guided missiles. Hmm. You yeah. shoot off the torpedo, the wire unspools, and while it's doing that, reaching its maximum length, you can still control where it goes. Once you get cool. too far or it explodes, that wire's done. You toss it and load the next one in. Okay. They really missed out. If they had eBay back then, there's a real secondary market for used torpedo wire, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure they probably try to recycle as much of that as they could. Or even just like a collector. It's like, whoa, this is the third torpedo launch from this ship. Maybe. I'll let you uh, look into that. Oh, okay, yes. Maybe we'll be able to put some torpedo wire up on the bulkhead to decorate. That's right. It'll really spruce up the place. Yeah. Germany produced their first battery-powered torpedo just before World War II. It was called the G7E. It was slow. It did not have a very long range than, you know, the conventional torpedoes. But it was wakeless and cheap. Its battery, which was a lead-acid rechargeable battery, was sensitive to shock, though. It needed very heavy maintenance before it was used, and it had to be preheated. I imagine in the throes of battle, that's probably a, a, a tough thing to do. Well, no. Torpedo tubes had heaters installed just for that purpose. Oh, okay. I was just picturing guys just kind of like, like they would rub a dog's belly, but just kind of, all right, torpedo, we're, it's time. Rub the torpedo's belly, get it really happy before you shoot it out right. the, into the That's water. That's right. Well, you want it to be, do its best. Right. Now, the U.S., they had a electric design. This was the Mark 18. And it was pretty much just copied from the German version. Although they did, although they did put in better batteries. So they also developed Fido, which was a airdropped mine for anti-submarine warfare. And they also developed an airdropped acoustic homing torpedo for anti-submarine operations. So that, how noisy are submarines when they're underwater? You said they, they were electric at this point, right? The diesel engines wouldn't be going unless they were, had surfaced. It also depends on which part of the war. By the end of getting close, about the second half Closer to the end, they had started developing uh, snorkels that okay. they would release to the surface and bring in air that way to power the diesel engines. Okay. And so then an acoustic mine or uh, explosive would, would be able to track those things better. That, but when they're running silent, it would be har much harder. But, I mean, don't feed your guys beans when you're running silent. Oh, yeah. It's just... Stop eating beans, Frank. 
The torpedo's gonna get us. Now, the modern electric torpedoes like the Mark 24 Tigerfish, the Black Shark, or the M2, they use silver oxide batteries. That means they don't need to do any maintenance, and they can store them for years without any performance drop. Wow. So, of course, when you're trying to figure out how to propel things, you got to try rockets. You have to. I think it's a, a law. Yeah. They, of course, it's not going to be successful. But the Russians were very, very interested in rocket-propelled torpedoes. They were developing the VA Tech 111 Shikval. Now, they have recently started being revived in Russia and in Germany because it is suitable for super cavitating torpedoes. What does what is a what does that mean? That is well, cavitation is shaking, right? Okay. So they use that to create a bubble around the torpedo uh-huh. to reduce skin friction and drag on the torpedo. So in theory, if they can get this to work, it'll be able to increase the range and speed even more. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, you, all the friction you'd have for trying to go through the water would be gone. And if they can get that to work for torpedoes... Oh, boy. They're going to do that for any other submersible. Yes. Wow. So the modern energy sources, you knew we were getting here eventually. Oh, yes. They use a variety of propellants. They do electric batteries. They use monopropellants. They use bipropellants. And the Swedes actually use sulfur hex fluoride with, li- with, lin- uh, with lithium. The British use autofuel 2 plus hydroxyl ammonium. I just keep hearing the, the fuel types and thinking that either it sounds completely foreign and I wonder why they pick that thing or, oh, okay, car fuel, I get that, but why are they adding, what did you say, hydroxyl? Hydroxyl ammonium. Huh. Oh, there's a third word here. I'm sorry. Hydroxyl ammonium perchlorate. Okay. Oh, well, then that makes total sense. Yeah. C- continue. <laughs> So, propellers. Mm-hmm. That was propulsion sources. This is how you actually do it. The first torpedoes had a single propeller, and it needed a large vane to stop it spinning along its longitudinal axis, right? Mm-hmm. So, they were like, this sucks. Hey, let's do contra-rotating propellers. We, now we don't need to use the vane. Right. And you know what's even better than two propellers? Let's do three. So they did that in in 1893. And then they were like, you know what? Three's nice. Let's go with four. Man, this is like the razor blade wars of the early 2000s. Yeah. Now, today's modern torpedoes, to minimize the noise, they use pump jets. Okay. So no propellers at all, just squirting out water, I guess, or? Uh... It is a, it's a water jet. It produces a jet of water. This is like an underwater jet engine. Okay. That, that makes sense to me. Okay. Okay. Now the Russians, the Iranians, and the Germans, they are using super super cativation, which means they're reaching speed of over 200 knots. Dang. That would be very hard to outrun. The American and British are limited to just under 100 knots right now. But, of course, here's the thing. Militaries and manufacturers, they don't release exact figures. Oh, right. So the Russians, the Iranians, and the Germans could be feeding everybody a complete line of BS. I, I believe it, that they're lying like liars. So let's move on to guidance. How are you going to steer these stupid things? So torpedoes are aimed at a target. 
and fired unguided in when they first started. Right. So, you know, it's, it's pretty much like a traditional artillery shell. And then you walk them in. Later, they come with guided torpedoes that use, like, sound or an operator sitting there just steering it or with commands over a wire, wire guidance. So let's get into the unguided. So these unguided is normally what you would do is aim it, put your settings where you want it on the physical torpedo itself, like putting the fin this way, that way, what, whatnot, and then mm -hmm. you just shoot it. You would also set the distance you wanted it to go, the depth you wanted it to run at. So you could set it to explode right before the hole, and that will allow you to use the natural physics of explosions underwater to damage the vessel quite a lot. Or you could try to jam it right up into their backside. So I remember earlier in the episode you were talking about... Uh... I guess during the Israeli Six-Day War, how there was an Israeli submarine that launched a torpedo at a U.S. Um, intelligence ship and crippled it. And when you talk about these settings, is there a way to set it, not like to stun versus kill, but as far as a way to minim like disable something without maximizing loss of life? Yes, you could shoot it. Uh, have it detonate a specific distance away to try to minimize the damage. But it also depends on your target, uh, their armor, their water tightness, hmm. and how well the crew is trained in damage control. That's a lot of factors. So that it sounds pretty tough to do. It can be, yeah. You, you can shoot three torpedoes into somebody and they'll still be fully operational. Or okay. you, you could shoot just one torpedo into somebody and that boat's at the bottom of the ocean two minutes later. So. All right. Well, th that, that answers my question. It's kind of a crapshoot. Yeah, it really is. Uh, so you're talking about depth settings and unguided, uh, like how to adjust the fins before launch and whatnot? Yeah. They also had things like gyroscopes, to keep them on a straight course. So with these type of torpedoes, the method of attack and like small torpedo boats and torpedo bombers and, you know, midget submarines, they try to steer on a, and predict the course of what they're trying to shoot. And then launch that torpedo at the absolute last minute they can. And then try to, bug out of there as quickly as they can so they don't get hit by the blast wave of that torpedo. And of course, they are subject to defensive fire in the entire way in and entire way out. In larger ships and in larger submarines, they had fire control calculators. And this allowed them to have a... be able to fire further away to keep themselves safer. These were originally known as plotting tables and they had a lot of specialized slide rulers and they were able to put in like speed distance their course the target's course their course and the performance of the torpedoes that they have as well and this is what's known as a firing solution you've probably heard of that in movies like the hunt for red october or something mm -hmm. i have heard that i, I just was recalling how prolific slide rules were uh, once upon a time. And for our younger listeners, that's what we used before calculators. Yeah, the Navy still uses them for manual plotting. That's a, what? that's a skill that's still in use. That's cool. It's a backup. Yeah, yeah. It allows you to, if you have no power, no access, you still can figure out how to get where you're going. Yeah, it's just a, a redundant system now is the human brain. Whew. What a load off. I'm glad. <laughs> so by the Second World War, I broke my rubber band. Uh, well, it was bound to happen by the Second World War. Apparently. Uh, by the Second World War, computers started taking over the slide ruler 
mechanics. And this was then further developed into the U.S. Navy's torpedo data computer. But as I was just telling you, submarine commanders are still expected to be able to calculate a firing solution by hand. Again, because it's a backup for failures, mechanical failures. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's just simple trigonometry anyway. Well, I think so. I was just thinking about, you know, being being the captain of a ship is impressive. But a lot of times you don't know the the panoply of skills that it takes to do that. And in this case, I mean, being able to do that kind of calculation potentially under fire, that's that's impressive. Well, you would think a captain would know how to do every single job on board that ship, and that's why he's able to be the captain. Mm-hmm. So let's hope that's still the way it goes, at least for the good guys. Yes, at least exactly. <laughs> Not so much for those other guys. So against high-value targets and, you know, like a convoy of multiple targets, submarines will launch a spread of torpedoes. This is to increase the probability of success. These became known as squadrons. You know, a bunch of torpedo boats and a bunch of torpedo bombers. They would create a fan of torpedoes across the enemy's course. When they... Attackees saw this kind of attack coming. The best thing you can do is to turn into a parallel course of the incoming torpedoes and try to steam away. This is pretty much you're trying to outrun these torpedoes, hoping that they run out of fuel before you do. I think from a fuel perspective, the, the, the ship should have significantly more. And so, yeah, yeah. Well, also, you know, if they're running at 100 knots and you can only do 30, I really don't think that's going to do much for you. Uh, You just got to really hope that they don't have much fuel on board. Right. Now, the alternative was to, quote, comb the tracks. This is to turn parallel akin, but this time towards the torpedoes. This was to attempt to make yourself such a small target that you'll get missed. But, of course, this also allowed you to engage the boat or plane that fired this torpedo at you, you know, to increase the attempt to kill those that try to kill you. That makes sense. And then also minimizing, like, you're not exposing your broadside. You're just kind of turning. You lower the the amount of target area, and then you're primed to to kind of punch back. Nice. Mm-hmm. Now, the downside to using multiple torpedoes in this way is that, you know, you can only carry so many with you at one time. So each one you fire off lowers your combat endurance. So that is why the guided torpedo was invented. One torpedo, one hit. I was, you know, I was just wondering, I was picturing, we we're talking about guided torpedoes and how they use those torpedo wires. But I never thought about it with respect to planes, and I just thought it would be hilarious to see a plane drop a torpedo with this wire just kind of going along. And I don't know if that happens, but it seems like a bad idea from a, a an aerial maneuvering perspective. Yeah, it wouldn't happen with, with planes. Okay. It would look funny. It would look funny. It'd be like the torpedo flying the plane like a kite. Right. But... You're already so close in with the plane trying to hit their target with that torpedo. You, you, you veer away or you go right into the boat. Yep. That's it. That's how close they are when they're dropping those things. And that's if they even survive getting in and out. Right. So the first part of guidance was called pattern running. This was introduced by the Germans in World War II. This was a programmable pattern running torpedo. They would run a predetermined path that got entered into them, and they would keep going until, A, they hit something, or B, they ran out of fuel. The first version, called FAT, ran out after a launch in a straight line, and then weaved backwards and forwards parallel to that first course. And then the more advanced LUT version 
could go at different angles after launch and then have even more of a complex weaving pattern. Then there was radio and wire guidance. The first one was rope guided. You know, that was pretty much just as propulsion. But the wire guidance didn't come in until about 1960. The During the First World War, the U.S. evaluated radio-controlled torpedoes launched from a service ship called the Hammond Torpedo. The 1930s version claimed to have an effective range of about six miles. That seems pretty good. Claimed. Oh, uh-huh. Wink, wink, nudge, <laughs> nudge. <laughs> they will never know the truth. That's classified. So modern torpedoes, they use a umbilical wire. It allows the uh, computer processing power of the launching platform to be used and allow it to program it. The Mark 48 that the U.S. uses can operate in a number of different modes, which means they have tactical flexibility. So then we move on to homing. These are also known as fire and forget. They use passive or active guidance or a combination of both. The passive, which are the acoustic torpedoes, home in on emissions from a target, such as the surface ship's diesel engines. Got it. Yeah. And then the active acoustic torpedoes, they hone on a reflection of a signal that they put out, or, you know, the ping for sonar. Okay, that makes sense. Now, the disadvantage of the active acoustic is of course once you put that ping out everybody knows where it's where it's at and there's also semi-active mode this is a torpedo that can be fired from the last known position or a calculated position of a target and then it pings for the target once it's in attack range so they'll see it coming but they won't know where it's coming from that's pretty wild but i guess that's kind of the whole the whole strategy with submarines is just keep in the shadows. Like, don't reveal yourself unless you really, really have to. So that right. makes that, that that plays right into the overall strategy. And there's no reason you would have to reveal yourself ever. Right. So these homing guidance systems were brought in during the Second World War and the at, towards the end of it. This was the American Mark 24 mine, the Mark 27 torpedo, and the German G7ES torpedo. Pattern following and wake homing torpedoes are also developed at this time. And acoustic homing formed the basis for torpedo guidance after World War II. They were like, this is working so well, we got to keep going with this. Right. Now, the homing systems for torpedoes are normally acoustic. Though there have been other target sensors used before. Because the ship's acoustic signature is not the only emission a torpedo can hone on to. To attempt to go after the U.S.'s supercarriers, the Soviet Union developed the Wake homing torpedo. Because standard acoustic lures can't distract a Wake homing torpedo. So the U.S. Navy has installed the surface ship torpedo defense on aircraft carriers that use a countermeasure anti-torpedo to hone in on and destroy the attacking torpedo. That's cool. Yeah, I was wondering about torpedo countermeasures. How do you even defend against them? Except for run away. Run away, maneuvering, throwing. Uh, it, you know, so planes use chaff, right? Oh, yeah, like detritus There's of some sort. Underwater to... chaff, but it's acoustic chaff. Okay. And wow. it's usually just like bottles of compressed air that spin and make noise as they go away, as they, as they eject the air, as they sink. Cool. So I imagine if torpedoes are using acoustic tracking methods, they could hit uh, like sea life, right? Like whales and dolphins, I suppose? And I can neither confirm or deny the death of a sea creature due to... Totally incidental. I there. I know they're Testing not the main purposes. target, but stuff happens. I, I'm sure there have been innocent marine lives taken. Let's not jump to conclusions. Innocent, we don't know. Presumed innocent. 
until found guilty in a court of aquatic law. There we go. That's right. That's the court I recognize. So once King Triton, we'll have to talk to King Triton. We'll see. Yeah, we'll that, see what that, happens that then. Bonus episode, probably later. <laughs> All right. So I think we're going to stop there. Okay. All right. So we are teamed up with HeroCards.us, and we honor a fallen angel. The end of our episodes. So this time we are honoring Lieutenant Commander Manert L. Abelli. He his hometown was Newton Highlands in Maine. He served on the USS Grunion. He received the Navy Cross and the Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was July 30th, 1942, lost at sea near the Aleutian Islands. He was 39 years old. So Manet Lincoln Abelli was born in Quincy, Massachusetts on July 11th. 1903. He was born to Francis I. Abele Jr. and Addie L. Abele. He attended Cranch Grammar School and had three years at Quincy High School. And on August 12, 1920, at the age of 17, enlisted in the U.S. Navy as a seaman apprentice. He trained at Newport Rhode Island and was assigned to the USS Utah just before that boat left for their European. In December of 1921, he was detached from the Utah with orders to the United States to take a entrance exam into the Naval Academy. And on appointment at large, became a midshipman in June 1922. He graduated and was commissioned ensign on June 3rd, 1926, and was promoted to Lieutenant J.G. on June 3rd, 1928. Then made lieutenant in June 3rd, 1936, and then finally to Lieutenant Commander on December 1st, 1940. So after graduation from the Naval Academy, he served as a junior officer on board the USS Coronado until January 7th, 1929, when he reported to submarine base, New London, Connecticut, where he learned how to fight a submarine. He completed the course several months later and was assigned to the USS S-23, which was a unit of Submarine Division 4, which he served until April 1933. He then went on shore duty at the Bureau of Navigation, the Navy Department, until May 30th, 1936, and for three years after that was at sea, first on board the USS R-11, and then later in command of the USS R-13. From June 1939 until August 1940, he served as Assistant Professor of Naval Science in connection with the Naval Reserve Officers Training Unit at Harvard University. He was then placed in the commissioning of the USS S-31 and commanded that submarine from August 1940 until uh, November 1941. Then it was fitted out and re-christened the USS Grunion. He assumed command of her at her commissioning on April 11, 1942, in the early period of World War II. He was reported missing on August 1st, 1942, when the Grunion was lost and officially declared dead on August 2nd. He was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross. It reads, For extraordinary heroism as commanding officer of the USS Grunion during an aggressive and successful submarine war patrol from June 30th to July 24th, 1942. Despite vigorous anti-submarine measures on the part of the enemy, Lieutenant Commander Abilly, availing himself every attack opportunity with alert skill and efficiency, succeeded in sinking in one day three Japanese destroyers. By his courageous initiative and resourceful command he inflicted considerable damage upon the enemy and fulfilled a highly important mission at great risk against tremendous odds he was also posthumously awarded the purple heart and was entitled to the american defense service medal fleet clasp the asiatic pacific campaign medal and the world war ii victory medal there was a destroyer the uss mannert l abilie named in honor of the late lieutenant commander and was sponsored by his widow at the launching at Bath Iron Works in Bath, Maine, on April 23, 1944. 
It was commissioned July 4th, 1944, and it served with distinction in the Iwo Jima operations before she was sunk off the coast of Okinawa by two hits from enemy planes. A Japanese suicide plane and a jet-propelled Baka bomb. So, Lieutenant Commander Abeli, thank you. So, Mr. Third Officer, would you like to take us out? Oh, that's me. Uh, sure. Um, okay, so, last time I wasn't so good at this. This time I did some homework because that's the only way to get through to a promotion, number one. Uh, there is an, there is a, please subscribe to us. I know you're listening to us now, but tell your friends because they should listen too. And then if you want to contact the podcast, the email address is, it's one of two things. I'm pretty sure it's U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Is that correct? Yes. Perfect. And it's only one of one thing because it cannot be two things. Well, the thing is, okay, but let me follow up with this. The Twitter handle, which is slightly different, I sometimes switch with the email address. Okay, anyway, uh, it's USN, standing for United States Navy, USN History Pod. And there's an at the front of that. So you can find us there. And uh, yes, thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, your future contact of us via these two venues. And uh, yes, thank you for having me. We also have a Discord. Oh, the link is in the show notes. Discord, yes. And I have I have seen that the third officer isn't in there yet. I, that is true. I did not want to presume any uh, entitlement. Until it has been earned. Because, you know, that's the Navy. Any crew member can join. Oh, well, fantastic. Thank you for welcoming me, as well as all of our fabulous listeners. Oh, you'll be whelped. Well, welcomed. (laughs) Welcomed. Welcomed. All right, guys. Well, with that, we're going to wish you fair winds and following seas. Bye-bye. See you later. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing.